0: Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord.
1: What does it mean to be rich? Maybe you might think, like me, it's the ability to do anything you want, anytime you want, because money is not an issue. Julia, my wife, works for a realtor, and she was telling me about some some clients who choose to knock down a 20-year-old house because they don't like it, but they like the location. So they'll rebuild a new house in that place simply because they want to. I think that's a certain level of riches, right? Or maybe rich is like a certain tech CEO who has recently purchased a home here in D.C. And over the past three or four years, he's racked up $17,000 in parking tickets for his construction crew. As someone tweeted... Uh, You'll see here, like they said, the biggest appeal of being rich isn't the ability to buy anything or go to cool places or meet cool people, but to be able to exist in a space where the law is basically just a suggestion. Maybe that's a kind of rich. That's a lot of money, $17,000 in parking tickets for people like you and I who are just working regular jobs. But for someone like him, he makes $3,000 every second. That's $200 every 6.7 milliseconds. So $17,000 in parking tickets is like a Happy Meal at McDonald's. That's a certain level of rich. I think few of us are that kind of rich. Maybe we're a little more modest. We just want to be comfortable. Not excessively rich. We want to have a home that we can afford that doesn't require us to move far away from friends and family. We want to be able to afford an education or afford medical care when it's needed without going bankrupt. Or maybe you're a little more philosophical about what it means to be rich. Riches are a state of mind, and riches aren't about dollars and cents, but instead they're about relationships and emotional well-being. Riches are about feeling full in life. But if you dig a little deeper, what's behind this desire to be rich, or at least this desire to be comfortable? Regardless of what your measurement of riches are, there's something that we are putting our trust in for our long-lasting security. We want to be in a place where you don't want to just worry. Actually, it's not even being in a place where you don't have to worry. It's being in a place where you don't have to even think about having the possibility of worrying. That's rich. The general assumption, though, is that to be rich is good, and it's helpful. And to be poor is to be bad and unhelpful. But my encouragement to you is, what if this assumption is wrong, especially when we consider a certain kind of riches and a certain kind of poverty? In this Beatitude series that we've entitled True Greatness, we're looking at how Jesus' pronouncements here that open the Sermon on the Mount invite us to consider a different measure of greatness that's found when we're part of God's kingdom. Today in this first Beatitude, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We're going to explore what Jesus' first beatitude has to say about our idea of riches and our idea of poverty. We'll do this in three parts. The first is where we find true riches, how to get true riches, and encountering true riches. Where to find it, how to get it, and encountering the true riches of God's kingdom. In last week's message, we learned how Matthew... Has written his gospel, his gospel account of Jesus' life and ministry to parallel the Old Testament scriptures, as he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience, compared to Luke, another gospel writer who is writing primarily to a Gentile audience, and so he's articulating things for them and interpreting things for them. But here, Matthew presumes his listeners know the Jewish story. And as Jews listening, they would have no doubt been familiar with the story of Israel where their ancestors came uh, through the wilderness and they arrived at the border of the promised land and at the top of a mountain, God gave them a solemn covenant. What's a covenant? God was looking for a partner, a partner in creation. And he listed these blessings and these curses that would come upon this partnering nation if they would be obedient or if they would be disobedient, in Deuteronomy 28. Here, Matthew has shown us Jesus. Jesus has come out of Egypt, in Matthew chapter 2. He's passed through the waters of baptism, and passed through 40 days of wilderness, in chapter 3 and 4. And now he's standing at the land of promise, in chapter just prior to this chapter. In this new covenant, standing on top of a mountain, talking to God's people, he's describing a new partnership, that God has with God's people. For generations and generations, the people of God had been promised a new land where God would come and rescue them. And they were asking, When would God's kingdom come? When is the Lord coming to meet us? And in this first pronouncement that Jesus makes, he's answering the question Whoever is poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whoever is poor in spirit, theirs. Is the kingdom of heaven. Like the final beatitude in this series, this pronouncement is made in the present tense, while the rest are in future tense. If you take a look at that, peppered throughout this chapter, we see Jesus describing aspects of a certain kind of riches that can be possessed. What he calls the great reward. Just view through it. He starts with this three in verse three: Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last one is, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 9, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Verse 19, you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. These are the kind of riches that Jesus is describing. For Jesus' hearers, they were expecting a material idea of greatness, a land, political freedom, power. But putting these statements together, Jesus is clear that the kind of riches and the kind of reward that he refers to are not merely material or relational. In fact, the kind of riches he refers to as being in heaven are actually described in each of the Beatitudes that follow. What's the great reward? A great reward of comfort. A great reward of satisfaction. The great reward of possessing the whole earth. the great reward of receiving God's mercy of seeing God, of being called, called God's children. These are all parts of the great reward for those who are in heaven. But the question then becomes, where is heaven if heaven is here? I'm sure the, his disciples asked that question then. You know, most of our idea of heaven is informed by pop culture, right? Or very recent development in Christianity, if you look at the long range of Christian The Christian faith is this personal relationship with God that we get to go to heaven. In our imagination, heaven is up there. Heaven is later. It's not connected with life here and now. But for Jesus, heaven is not up there and later. Heaven for Jesus was then in his time. And heaven is now for us. And heaven will be for all who are in Christ. All three of these statements are simultaneously true. So where then is heaven? Heaven is God's space, where full reality exists. It's close by our earthly, ordinary reality that we experience in our day-to-day lives. It's interlocking with it. I found this image. It's got more than two surfaces, but I think it kind of articulates perhaps what God's kingdom and our kingdom on earth looks like. They're intersecting. They're overlapping. And beginning with Jesus's arrival, those two surfaces begin. To interlink, We know that heaven is not all here yet because there's, the world is still broken. There's still injustice in the world that we live in. Heaven is not all now, but nor is it all in the future. To his followers that Jesus is addressing, heaven is now and imminent. And Jesus is pronouncing God's reality is here in a new way because Jesus has arrived. These two surfaces are beginning to interlock. People are healed. Relationships are restored. Parts of society that have traditionally been excluded and looked down upon, like children, like women, like lepers and the sick, they are given dignity and worth as equal standing in God's kingdom. They are welcomed into places where they have been excluded. They are given a voice that was limited only to men in power back then. The future is breaking in to the present. That's where heaven is. And we get to be part of heaven when we respond to Jesus. So in the Beatitudes, Jesus is describing what people who are in God's kingdom will look like. This is how people in heaven will live. So if the riches of heaven are nearer than we might imagine, how do we begin to experience them? There's a Canadian bank. Who had the slogan for many years and they've since pulled it because people began making fun of it in light of the insane cost of housing in large cities like Vancouver and Toronto that have now dropped in value. But their slogan is this you're richer than you think. You're richer than you think. The subtext of their marketing strategy is to say hey you know you're richer than you think right? You want security? You want a great life? Let us help you get there. Trust us with your money. That's what they're asking, right? You're richer than you think. Behind the question of riches is, what do you trust in? What do you bank on in life? Or a better question is, who do you bank on in life? Martin Lloyd-Jones is an Anglican pastor and theologian, and he reflected on this particular beatitude, and he says this, there is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in in spirit. There is no one who is in the kingdom of God, who is not poor in spirit. The order of the Beatitudes matters. and That's why Jesus launches with this particular Beatitude. Because this Beatitude unlocks all the other Beatitudes. And it's similar to the first time when the law was given to Moses on another mountaintop at the edge of the promised land. In those Ten Commandments, what's the first commandment? See? Yeah, Worship the Lord your God only. You shall have no other gods before me. It's the first commandment that unlocks all the other commandments. Because if you worship the Lord alone, then you won't take the Lord's name in vain. If you, take, if you worship the Lord alone, then you will, you will keep the Sabbath day holy. If you worship the Lord alone, you won't take matters into your own hands and take someone else's life or take someone else's wife. And so on. Recognizing our need. For God's help is the key to experiencing more of God's presence and blessing in our lives. Being poor in spirit unlocks comfort in mourning. Being poor in spirit unlocks seeing God with a pure heart. Being poor in spirit unlocks joy in persecution and the ability to be peacemakers in conflict. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes to us and says, as Martin Lloyd-Jones reflects further, there is this mountain that you have to scale the heights that you have to climb. And the first thing you must realize as you look at that mountain, which you are told you must ascend, is that you cannot do it. That is, you are inca- utterly incapable in and of yourself, and that any attempt to do it on your own strength is proof positive that you have not understood it. Any attempt to climb that mountain on your own strength is proof that you don't understand what that mountain is about. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. It's your attitude towards yourself. It's this deep and humbling realization that I don't have what it takes to belong in God's kingdom on my effort and on my merit. And any resistance to us that says, no, 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 you know, I'm not that bad, can I? Surely God will see my compassion. Surely God will see those times I volunteer to help those in need. Surely God will see how I sacrifice for my family. Surely God will see my good intentions and at least credit me for that. Not so for those who are in God's kingdom. Those who are poor in spirit recognize I've got nothing. I've got nothing to offer God that is merit worthy. And all I have to depend on is the person and the work of Jesus. All I've got to rely on is Jesus, the one who lived this life that I couldn't live and died this death that I deserve to die because of my brokenness, because of my propensity to rely on myself. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, this beatitude undermines the dominant storyline of our culture, particularly American culture. What's where it's most important? To be self-reliant, to be self-confident, and to express yourself. Project success, project confidence, project assurance. Don't acknowledge any weaknesses. Attack other weaknesses. In fact, use their weaknesses and leverage it for your own gain so you can hold on to your positions, so you can hold on to your wealth and your riches. I read a recent article that revealed this, that was had an opinion about the unhelpful nature of the presidential debate format as a means of determining the best candidate to lead the most powerful country in the world. It's likely foolish, I think, for, to think that one person can solve all the problems in the world and of our nation in 90-second sound bites, right? Truly wise leaders know that they don't know at all and surround themselves with competent leaders who are better and smarter than they are. And so this writer proposed an idea, and I'm paraphrasing it here. He says, what if we gave the candidates a complex problem to solve beforehand, 24 hours, 48 hours beforehand, and invited them to propose a solution of how they would attack this problem at the debates, who they would call upon, what voices would they bring into the conversation, and how they would tackle the specific problem. That seems like a more realistic uh, situation of what the president would do than to have five or six or two people try to get on a Twitter feed. Especially in light of leading a country in light of the complexities of our global interconnectedness with other nations and with meeting the needs of our citizens. I get it. In the presidential race, we're talking about impressing women and men to get their votes. And I'm not sure how people would respond to a leader who says, hey, I don't know the answer to that question, but this is who I would talk to, and this is how I would tackle it. I don't know. I don't know if the world's ready for that. But what this beatitude is talking about is not impressing women and men. talking about what impresses God. And what impresses God is not what you have done or what accomplishments you have or how much you believe in yourself or how likable your personality is. What impresses God is poverty of spirit. And poverty of spirit is how we get the reward of life in God's kingdom. So how do we become poor in spirit? I opened up the message with a few stories of how those in certain echelons of our society might live. When you meet Someone who is rich materially—that's when you begin to realize how poor you are. When I first started working after I graduated from college, and I was able to afford a nice restaurant, and I said, "Wow, I can actually afford to spend $50 on dinner for myself. I feel pretty rich right now." And then I open the wine list and I see bottles of wine for $500 and $1,000 for a bottle of wine. Maybe that's your 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 uh, your cup of tea, but that was pretty big step for me. And it's moments like those where I realize that I'm not quite as rich as I think I like to think I am. When we encounter the one who is rich in God's kingdom, that's when we begin to realize the poverty of our spirits. It happens over and over and over in Scripture. Byron reminded us of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 57. When prophet Isaiah comes before the living God and responds, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. That's what he experiences when he comes before the presence of God. We see it over and over again in this, in the in this story of Scripture. Kings like David. Leaders and deliverers like Moses. Apostles like Peter and Paul. These are all leaders with distinct personalities and strengths, but they share a common thread of humility and poverty of the Spirit. In Luke chapter 5, when Peter is first called by Jesus while he's fishing, Jesus demonstrates his power by instructing them to throw their nets into the water one more time on the other side of the boat. Now, you got to imagine the irony of this. There's this group of fishermen. They're career fishermen. They've been fishing all night. And they hear this guy who's a carpenter standing on the shore saying, Yo, take your nets and throw them on the other side. Can you imagine being Peter and the fishermen? who are you? What's your problem? But they do it. And what happens? The nets are so full, they pull it in, and the boat begins to sink. What's Peter's response there? When he encounters the reality of God, he says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. That's poverty of spirit. You know, even Jesus, though, reveals this attitude. Though he is always equal to God in power and in authority, he says in John chapter 5, I can do nothing of myself. Later on in John chapter 14, he says, He speaks only what the Father speaks. To be poor in spirit is to be completely absent in pride, completely absent of self assurance and self reliance. Poverty of spirit is to be conscious that we are nothing in the presence of God. And there is nothing we can produce, nothing that we can do ourselves to be able to stand before the living God. You know, Christ followers admit that we cannot rely on our natural birth. There's nothing that we can build our life upon, not our families, our ethnicities, or our attractions, or our wealth, or our class, or our Myers-Briggs, or our strengths finders, or our Enneagrams, or our colleges that we attended, not our personalities, not our dispositions. Nothing that we have can we depend on. Please, God, accept that God loves us. He comes to us and he restores us through the person and work of Jesus. But here's the thing. Becoming poor in spirit doesn't involve looking at yourself and looking at your flaws and giving yourself negative self-talk. That's not what it means to be poor in spirit because that's still focusing on yourself. Becoming poor in spirit only comes from an encounter. Poverty in spirit comes when we encounter the one who is truly rich in this universe. It's the result of encountering the living God. And when we look to God and we begin to see the glimpse of God's perfect love, his perfect character, of God's perfect kindness, that's when we begin to realize how utterly different we are from the living God we stand humbled and we see glory when we see God's glorious glory in his majesty that's when we realize how far we are from what God is like and that humbles us that he would come and love us and if we come to God and his character does not move us to a place of worship or to a place of awe And to a place of humility, that I'm afraid that we have not encountered the God of Scripture. Instead, we have encountered the God of our imagination, a God of our own creation. So, how do we encounter the living God? We read this book about Him, we read this about what God expects of humans who are partnered with God in relationship. And partner with God and living rightly in this world. And we read about how God's love leads Jesus to the world to die for us. Because none of us could ever live up to what God expects in this partnership. Then when we read that and realize what God has done for us. And we begin to contemplate what it means to stand before this kind of God. Maybe you're listening here today and you're unclear about what God looks like, I invite you to simply look to Jesus. God in the flesh. Look at Jesus. And the more we look at Jesus and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, then we will begin to have, uh, uh, then we will begin to experience absolute poverty and absolute emptiness. And we begin, when we become poor in spirit, then can we begin to see experience the riches of God's love displayed on the cross. Augustus Toplady was, wrote an iconic hymn in the 18th century called The Rock of Ages, which many people sing today. The stanzas articulate this poverty of spirit, saying, nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I claim. I have nothing to bring before you, God. I can only claim to the cross of Jesus Christ. Brendan Manning is a Catholic priest most famously known for his best-selling book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. He reflected how how, uh, the poor in spirit are like survivors in a shipwreck. At sea, all past achievements cannot be depended on. Your treasures mean nothing. Your titles mean nothing. Your degrees mean nothing. All that matters is this plank that you grab onto to be saved. He writes... The shipwrecked have little in common with the landlocked. The landlocked have their own security system, a home base. They have credentials and credit cards, storehouses and barns. They have their self-interest and investments intact. But they never find themselves because they never really feel themselves lost. They never find themselves because they never feel themselves lost. But the shipwrecked, on the contrary, reach out for the passing plank with the desperation of the drowning. Adrift on an angry sea in a state of utter helplessness and vulnerability, the shipwrecked never ask what they do to merit the plan and inherit the kingdom of dry land. They know that there is absolutely nothing any of them can do. Jesus and the cross of Christ are the only thing that we have to cling on to in God's kingdom. For those who respond to Jesus' invitation to enter the kingdom realize that being poor in, the spirit, in spirit is not just the way we enter into God's kingdom, but it's the way of life in God's kingdom. That's what Jesus is getting at in these Beatitudes. To be poor in spirit is to be rich in God's kingdom. This is how we experience long-lasting security. Look to Jesus, the richest one who became poor for our sake, as we just sang. And in our poverty, may we find the riches of God's kingdom's blessings to enjoy and to share. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to these beatitudes, we realize that we can't do them. Not by ourselves. But we thank you for the promise of great riches when we recognize our poverty in spirit. The moment we recognize that, that's when we are beginning to experience all that you have to offer. So wherever we have come today to this place with, as we realize our limitations, may we see how you are coming to us in your love and in your strength and in your comfort, and may we experience the riches of your kingdom, so that our joys may be, uh, that our lives may be full your joy and of your love and of your peace. In Jesus' name we pray.